The scripture reading this morning is Luke 18, verses 18 to 30, beginning on page 853 of the Pew Bible. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He replied, I have kept all these things since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, There is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? He replied, What is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Then Peter said, Look, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not get back very much more in this age and the age to come eternal life. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this morning we finish a a three-week series entitled God and Money. For those of you who maybe haven't been around for the full series, we'll give you a very quick recap. Uh, on the first week, we talked about the problem of money, how money can be problematic for us, particularly uh, the ways in which we worry about money. And that's a pretty level playing field for everybody. Uh, that's a sermon that could be preached anywhere, because whether you have money or you don't have money, we have a tendency to worry about it. We have a tendency to fret about it. Last week, we talked about the power of stewardship as a principle for the ways in which we think about our what we've been given, the money that we have, not as ours, but as something that God owns that we get to steward for a time and return back to him and how that principle will change the way that we think. And really, those two weeks are setting us up for a a unique sermon here today that probably wouldn't be preached in every church. And it's the question of, can, can God and wealth coexist? And there would have been lots of ways to try and avoid this topic here at the end of this sermon series, but uh, we're not going to do that today. We're going to go into what Jesus says and look for the words of hope that he would give to us. And it's okay if even kind of putting that title out there today makes you feel a little bit nervous, a little bit uh, uh, squeamish today. That's okay. Um, We're going to try and deal with this as faithfully as we can. And I just want, if you haven't been around for this sermon series or maybe haven't been around this church very much, I want you to know uh, that this is not some part of a larger uh, program. It's not some, there's not some hook at the end of this. Really, this is a discipleship issue. Following Jesus means that it's going to affect the way in which we view our wallets and our checkbooks and our bank accounts. 
And that's why we go into this today. And when we talk about God and wealth, sometimes we feel like there's a standard that Jesus sets that is really almost like defeating because it's so hard for us. When I, when I was in college, one of my gen ed classes was called Personal Fitness, a one-credit course uh, that every freshman had to take. Uh, and the class was composed of a weekly lecture and then a weekly, a weekly fitness lab. And to be honest, I had not planned on taking this class very seriously at all. But the labs sort of threw me for a loop. Each lab, you were supposed to push yourself, whether it was weightlifting or calisthenics or yoga or running or stretching or whatever. The only problem was that at the end of each lab, uh, the instructor would look at your performance, how, how much you were able to lift or how far you could run or how flexible you were, and then would rate you on a rating scale and let you know how you rated. I became perturbed after a couple labs because I kept hearing the same word over and over again. Uh, my rating was poor. <laughs> so after a couple labs, I realized I needed to take this class a little more seriously because I was determined to not have a, a human being tell me that I was poor at something. So, so I became determined. The next lab was sprints, not my strength, okay? I'm going to be honest with you on that. But I tried my absolute hardest, and I got poor. I asked the instructor kind of what the deal was, even noting the fact that I was starting to kind of feel bad about myself after every single lab. And is there any other scale that we could perhaps take a look at here? And he said, sorry, this is the measurement scale that was given to us. Just keep trying. I'm sure it's going to be okay. So I did what, I did what he said. The last lab was the mile run, the mile run. So I decided I was going to run the fastest mile that I could possibly run. I'm not a long-distance runner, if you haven't guessed. I ran my fastest mile ever, 8 minutes and 18 seconds. Right? Pretty good, right? Guess what that earned me? Poor. Yes, I got poor. I found out that to get a good, you would have to run a 7-minute mile, and excellent would have been less than 6 minutes. Come on, who does that? I was nowhere close. And I walked away feeling so defeated, having tried my best and still having someone tell me that was poor. That was poor. So I won't lie when I tell you that, especially when it comes to certain topics, Jesus Christ himself is kind of intimidating, right? There are certain things that Jesus talks about that seem so outrageous and so big that I just end up feeling defeated. One such topic is on money and particularly what we do with our money, giving. And we're going to talk about giving today. The way that Jesus talks about giving is so beyond my 21st century mind that I really can't get a handle on it. And as I read Jesus' instructions on giving, I feel as if I have to rate poor on that scale. It's, it's a real defeating thing for me at times. Uh, I was first introduced to the idea of giving at, at, my, at my church growing up uh, and introduced the idea of tithing, which some of you are familiar with, a concept that comes from the Old Testament. Um, sort of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament in which a person or family would give 10% of their crops or their earnings at the temple. And Christians throughout the centuries have used that 10% tithe as a standard to sort of begin to talk about giving. And I was encouraged from the time I was a young boy to, to set aside 10% of my allowance and then eventually my paycheck to be given to church and to, God, and to God's work in the world. Sorry about that. And it's something that we as a family continue to, to do today. And just when I start to feel good about that, 10%, oh, good job, I realize that Jesus is not all that interested in tithing. He never talks about it. Look at our scripture passage from today. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, Jesus does not respond by saying, why don't you just give me a 10% tithe and we'll call it good. He asks for so much more. Jesus' words on giving are the opposite of what you would read in a, in a book or in a financial planning seminar 
Jesus basically says, how about you just give me everything? Just give me everything. And if I'm reading Jesus correctly, throughout the Gospels, I see him saying that you should give what you have. You should sell your possessions and, and, and give those proceeds to the poor. You shouldn't spend money on unnecessary or opulent things. You should give with, with one hand, not knowing what the other hand is doing. You should loan money out interest-free, even without any obligation for people to pay you back, and that you should do this all humbly and generously with a smile on your face with no regard for yourself, and you should like it. <laughs> do you see why Jesus is intimidating? How can you and I measure up to a standard like that? My best is, is really paltry on that kind of scale. And short of a, a handful of people that I know that have taken vows of poverty in their lives, I, almost, I have almost no models for how to do this at all. And then Jesus seems to come down particularly hard on those who are wealthy. And then I get really nervous because, I mean, look, look where we live, people. I mean, what would Jesus say if he drove through Hinsdale today on the way to church? Now, I know where your mind just went in those last two sentences. And yes, I can go there too. I'm not that wealthy, right? I'm not, that, I'm, I'm not wealthy. Maybe you're saying, yeah, but I mean, have you seen the monster house two doors down from me? Have you seen what they're doing? Or family down the street, do you know how many vacations they go on? We don't go on that many vacations. Some of you are here sitting right now and go, well, I don't live in Hinsdale, so Lars isn't talking to me, right? <laughs> Well, according to the Credit Suisse Global Wealth Report, if you have an income of $32,400, you are in the global 1% of the richest human beings on earth. Another way to put this today, if you drove a car to church and you expect to eat a meal, there, there's no question in your mind that you will eat a meal after the service at some point today, you are in an extremely exclusive club of the ultra-rich in this world. So if we can this morning, let's lose the pretense of our wealth being all that different from one another, if that's okay. Westmont wealth or Hinsdale wealth or Chicago wealth or Downers Grove wealth, north of the tracks, south of the tracks. Let's just agree that we're all rich. That has to be our starting point this morning. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we're rich. We're like filthy rich. So what is a church full of rich people supposed to do? We hear sermons on riches and wealth, and it can sometimes feel like we're being beat up a little bit. I know some of you felt that way. Hopefully not in this church, but that you felt that way in other places. What do we do with the fact that Jesus confronts this man and says he's not going to inherit eternal life unless he gives everything away? Are we just fated to, to constantly rate poor on a scale of Christian living and fitness for salvation? Is that what's going on here? Are we doomed to our huge cars and, and our huge houses and our nice cars and, and our full stomachs to never be able to experience the fully abundant life that Jesus calls us to? It's enough for us to join those disciples. Maybe you joined with them as it was being read for you. Well, then who can be saved? What's the point? This is just hopeless, right? If these are the standards, what are we supposed to do? Well, there is good news for us today. All that, all that the Bible seems to so clearly say about wealth, this ridiculous standard that Jesus sets, isn't actually the whole picture. John Schneider's book, The Good of Affluence, has been extremely helpful for me in the past couple weeks as I've been preparing for this. He speaks to a really important distinction for us to, to understand as we're thinking about this. 
There were certainly rich people in biblical times. There have been many rich Christians in the church since. But throughout human history, and therefore church history and human history, there have never before, we've never before known entire societies that were affluent like ours. This is really unique. It's a really unique thing. For much of human history, almost everyone was poor, and only a very few people were rich in any given society. The vast majority of Christians throughout history that have walked on this earth were very poor. So when the biblical authors or voices throughout Christian history teach us on wealth and poverty, they are writing in extremely different circumstances than the ones we're sitting in here today. Much of our Bible and the moral teachings therein are written to those who are in poverty. All of which means we need to read this with an adjusted lens today. I would preach a really different sermon this morning from this text here as opposed to if I was asked to preach in Inglewood today, right? It would be applied differently. So it is for us today as we try and understand the intent of these biblical authors. So let's apply a lens here. In our text today, we have this this rich young ruler. And those hearing this story in, in, in the original time were likely poor. So what lens would they be using? Well, those who are poor are likely to look at this rich man and assume what about him? That God has blessed him. That he's an emblem of of God's blessing, his wealth, his position. uh, it's, It's a sign of God's blessing upon him. And what does Jesus do with that in this text? He completely dissolves that, right? He completely dissolves that. He says that these riches are not equal to God's blessing. In fact, these riches don't get this man any closer to God or to heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, some have tried to soften this analogy, say, well, maybe we're talking about a different kind of camel. Maybe the needle's an analogy for something else. I hate to break it to you. We're talking about a large camel and a little minuscule eye of a needle. In other words, it's impossible. It's impossible. Or, if we're applying the lens of those who are equating blessing with riches, it's impossible to equate riches with salvation. And here's where another lens comes into play. How do we read this as as rich people rather than the intended audience, which was poor? Interestingly, Luke kind of helps us out here. He's the only one of the gospel writers uh, who conveys this story, who calls this this rich man a ruler. Luke has a different sensibility than the other gospel writers because he actually is writing to at least one wealthy Roman patron that's reading uh, his gospel. And so he puts in ruler, and it's almost as if he, he has a sensitivity to say, the fact that this, this man has money means that he has power and responsibility and that he has utilized his money into a certain kind of power. He's hoarded his riches. But here's the deal. If we're reading with this lens, wealth is actually not the issue. It's an inability to let go of the wealth. If Jesus were addressing an affluent culture like ours, I think he would likely lean into the responsibility of one who has wealth and still wants to follow Jesus, not just having the right answers like this man did, but putting our money where our mouth is. So, so often we can read the Gospels and catch this sense that that Jesus and wealth just don't play well together. They don't exist together. But even in our text this morning, there's some hope, isn't there? I mean, I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't send this rich young ruler away. Did you notice that? He doesn't just send him away. He knows his heart, 
and he invites him to devalue his earthly wealth. Jesus' invitation to follow should be encouraging to us in our society here today as those who are in the top 1% of global wealth. While many have written and spoken about the vices of our capitalist atmosphere in which we sort of swim and operate in, that it's incompatible with Christianity on a basic level, I don't really believe that. I believe that that capitalism, even though it's rife with pitfalls and dangers for all of us, it can be a liberating power and it can be a great opportunity for men and women of faith who sincerely love Jesus and know the grace that Jesus gives to express their love for Jesus. So as we study Jesus, there are some clues as to how those of us who are considered rich might seize this opportunity, how we might escape the notion of just rating poorly as our lot in life and never being able to catch up. You'll notice that Jesus never tells the poor to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but he regularly tells the rich to give to the poor, to learn from the poor, to seek the advantage of the poor. And there are examples of of people in Scripture who were able to do what the rich young ruler was not able to do. Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, gave up his lucrative career as a tax collector to give up everything and follow Jesus. Little Zacchaeus, a tax collector, gave up his greedy money ways and and instead decided to pay back, uh, more than pay back, those people that he had wronged. So there is hope for us, friends, and, and Jesus' invitation to follow stands for us as well. So, what do we do? Well, it's two steps, really. The first is to recognize that you're rich. Bury the excuses, give up the comparisons, get some perspective today, and let's just admit it, we're rich. Once we've admitted this, we can move on to step two, which is to give away generously as a way of drawing near to those who need us and those who I think we need to learn from. My dear theology professor, John Weborg once lectured on congregational care and said, some of you are going to be called to suburban affluent churches. And he said, you're going to have to preach about money. You're going to have to preach about wealth. He said, never make people feel guilty for their wealth. Instead, encourage them to be generous. Tell them that the accumulation of money will inevitably pull them further and further away from those who need them and who they in turn need if they are not careful. Is that a good word for us today or what? So you're not going to receive any guilt from me today. We have no rating system. You're not going to receive a poor rating today. But you are going to receive a charge to be generous. The onus is on all of us who are rich to do our part to make sure that the barrier is not created between us and those who who need us. So maybe you're sitting here today and you you kind of know I'm already practicing a a radical generosity in my life. This is an intentional thing I'm doing. and And if that's you, I want to say, that's awesome. Can I encourage you to even do more today? Can I encourage you to ask Jesus if he's calling you to even do more? Maybe you're sitting here today and you've been withholding. You've been overly conservative. It's time to wake up and it's time to hear Jesus' words this morning. So no matter where you are, I can't know where everyone is today. No matter where you are, I do have three principles that I think are going to help us be more generous. And this is, this is how I'll close today. First is, when we're excited about our relationship with Jesus, it becomes more natural for us to give. I go back to when I was in high school and I was going through sort of a a personal revival in my life, being really drawn close to to God in in lots of different ways. And uh, I I had an example of how easy it was to give. 
my, my schedule got goofed up because I was taking a zero hour. I ended up in a lunch that was, um, I was the only senior in a lunch full of freshmen, which you might think I was kind of dismayed by that, right? But I started to see it as an opportunity. So every lunch for that semester, I would buy a freshman lunch and I would sit down with them and I'd talk with them about high school and what their fears were and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes I would share my faith with them. It bugged my parents a little bit that I was asking for extra money uh, every day for lunch. But I was happy to, to give a little extra money from my own paycheck that I was earning because God's grace was real and God's love was real in my life and it was overflowing. And it's not hard to give in times like this. So in a sense, the best word of encouragement I have is, is do whatever you can to strengthen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because giving will be natural and, and totally voluntary when you're growing in your relationship with Jesus. Second principle is this, even when you're not in an excited or joyful place, giving is a spiritual discipline that's going to draw you closer to Jesus. When I've been in the midst of those kind of personal, really exciting times in my life, it draws me into God's word, it draws me into prayer, it draws me into serving him and, and putting faith into action. But in the dry places, when, when, when we kind of become spiritually dry, would it ever be a good idea to stop doing those things? to be in God's word, to serve, or to pray? No, we would say, that's your lifeline, right? That's your lifeline in dry places. So why should giving be any different? Maybe you're not in a place of joy right now. Maybe you don't feel like you can give very joyfully, but that doesn't mean that you should stop giving any more than you should stop praying or reading God's word or serving. And this is where I really think the value of tithing is. Notice I buried this a little bit. Jesus never commands tithing. But, but many Christians throughout the centuries have had that 10% mark as, as sort of a measure of faithful giving. And, and I think 10% is a brilliant number because 10% is the same for everybody, right? 10% is 10%, no matter what you make. And I think 10% is kind of a big deal. I think about what an extra 10% would mean for our personal finances every month if we could stash that away into a savings instead of giving it to church and, and the ministries that we that we feel so strongly about, it would make a huge difference for us. In other words, 10% is like just the perfect amount of hurt, right? <laughs> it's enough to give us pause and to go, okay, God, I know what I would do with this. I know what I would do with this, but now I'm, I'm giving it over to you and I'm going to see what you're going to do with it. It takes trust and it takes faith. And trust and faith help us deepen our relationship with Jesus even when we're in dry patches, even when we're in trying times. Third principle is this, and this is specifically to us here today. Those who are truly rich have the opportunity to have amazing kingdom impact. I think rich Christians are one of the most amazingly potent tools for God's work in the world. I really do. They're rich in wealth, but they're also rich in grace because they know Jesus. Like you... you you have it so, it's, it's such an awesome gift that we have this, right? We know Jesus and we know his grace, but we also have been given this blessing. Every Christian can give out of the, of the overflow of God's grace upon them. But rich Christians, those of us here, we have a unique opportunity because we're rich in Christ and we're rich in our checkbooks. So you can, through your wealth, support God's work in the world through, through this church and many other ministries in ways that 99% of the world can't do. God loves every giving heart, big and small. The amount does not matter to him. But from the very beginning of, of this movement called the church, 
rich Christians have provided for the gospel feet so that the gospel could travel throughout the world. So you have an incredible opportunity for kingdom impact, my friends. So as we close our series on God and money this morning, I have a couple of practical things I'd like for you to ponder. First, I just want you to simply assess your regular faithful giving to this church or your home church or other ministries. Do you know where you're at in your giving? When's the last time you did an audit of that? Are you giving an amount that causes you to trust in God rather than yourself? Can you feel that giving? Does it hurt a little bit? (laughs) Is it a sacrifice? And then second, I want to ask you if God is leading you to a more joyful and cheerful giving, a generous giving based on the movement of God that's going on in your heart and in your life. If you're excited about what God is doing in your life and in this place, I would think the natural outflow of that excitement would be to give beyond the norm. Just as you've come to know Jesus Christ who gave beyond the norm for each and every one of you. I don't say this as a command or to make you feel any level of shame. I do it because Jesus repeatedly confronts our wealth and I desperately want for all of us to follow him into the abundant life that he can give. The abundant life that will never come if we walk away from him because we love our money too much. And may you hear Jesus' shocking call to give away everything, not, on, uh, not as a knock on your ability to give, as him saying, your best is still pretty poor. But rather, may you hear his call to give everything as an echo of his giving everything for you. And may you respond to that truth with overflowing joy and with generosity. I'm going to invite the band to, to come forward, and as a way of response today... I'm aware as, as the preacher on every Sunday, but particularly on a Sunday like this, I don't know where all of you are. I don't know how this text this morning, any of the words that I might say hit you today. I don't know what work God needs to do in your life and your heart, or maybe is already doing in your life and in your heart. So I want to hold just a minute of silence, like a minute of quiet. And what I want you to do is, I want you to pray that God would soften your heart to what he wants to say to you today. Maybe it's something really particular that you're already thinking about. Maybe, maybe God is calling you towards a generosity that you haven't considered before. Maybe God is calling you to a costly gift that scares you. I don't know what it is, but I trust that God does. So I'm going to invite you to just bow your head with me. If you're comfortable, I would invite you to just take your hands and open your palms up on your lap as a sign of openness to God. And I'm just going to hold a minute of silence for us so that God might soften our hearts, convict us, and speak to us.